to another episode of the Bible Podcast. Uh, forgive me, today I woke up a little stuffy, so I might uh, take a few breaks to blow my nose, but we'll see how this goes. Uh, before we jump in today, I wanted to start out with a quick prayer. Dear God, I know that the first step in all spiritual healing is to believe. We believe. We open our minds and hearts, believing in your infinite power and possibility. We believe that healing is a dynamic and reachable experience, a reality that can be experienced right now. We maintain a patient and loving attitude, for we believe that our healing activity is now at work in our body and mind. We look forward with joyful expectation to the perfect wholeness that you are now bringing into manifestation through us. We believe in your constant expression of perfect good in and through us. We rest in the certainty of your healing power. We know that with you, all things are possible. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So today we're going to be reading chapters 19 through 21 in the book of Exodus. Start with chapter 19. The Lord reveals himself at Sinai. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, Go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Concentrate, Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day, for on the day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, 
stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up to the mountain. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship, and they washed their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day, and until then, abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountains. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. Then the Lord told Moses, Go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord, or they will die. Even the priests who regularly came near, come near to the Lord just must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, Go down and bring Aaron back up to you, back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. Here in chapter 19, Israel's new sense of identity and ability has to be was to be founded upon her relationship with God. The Israelites had suffered under Egyptian bondage. Their sense of identity had been defined by that terrible experience. God had graciously delivered them and had brought them to himself. Now the Lord called the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests and his holy nation. They were no longer a nation of slaves. As we progress spiritually, we also need to see ourselves as people loved and blessed by God, not as slaves to sins, passions, and wholesome desires. In verses 12 through 23, here we see that God set limits or boundaries beyond which the people of Israel or even their livestock were not to step. There was mortal danger for those who overstepped God's boundaries. The unauthorized approach into God's holy presence meant certain death. We, too, must learn to respect the limits placed upon us by God's word. We only invite painful consequences when we ignore them. <clears throat> Chapter 20 Ten Commandments for the Covenant Community Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make your for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, 
the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of your parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You may not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God has given you. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor, you must not covet your neighbor's house, you must not cover your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people heard the thunder, the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear and they said to Moses you speak to us and we and we will listen but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die don't be afraid Moses answered them for God has come in this way to test you and so that you fear that your fear of him will keep you from sinning as the people stood in the distance Moses approached the dark cloud where God was proper use of altars and the Lord said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. You saw your, for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. Build for me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered and I will come to you and bless you. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. And do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness. So here in chapter 20, the first four of the Ten Commandments provided the Israelites with a few foundational principles to govern their relationship with God. They were not to worship any other gods, make, idol, make idols of any kind, misuse God's name, or violate God's Sabbath day of rest. Each of these principles represents boundaries that God has set to define his relationship with his people. Jesus later summed up this vertical relationship as the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Loving God includes living out a 
consistent faith and commitment to him. The final six of the Ten Commandments deal with principles that define boundaries for healthy human relationships. Only the command to honor our parents is stated positively. The other five are negative. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, and do not covet anything belonging to your neighbor. Jesus summed up these human relational boundaries like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. This great commandment assumes that we have cultivated a healthy self-respect and follow it up with loving actions that respect the boundaries of others. In verses 18 through 20, here we see the people of Israel as they shook the with fear before God's holy presence. Fear is an emotion that can be either healthy or unhealthy. When we fear danger or the consequences of inappropriate actions, it is a helpful guide. But when fear is constant or overwhelming and not connected to reality, it is unhealthy. The fear of God can be defined as thoughtful reverence for God. It is certainly a healthy emotion based on the reality of God's holiness. Fear of God should result in a vibrant faith and motivate us to act according to God's plan for our lives. Excuse me. So, ages before late night TV host David Letterman popularized his humorous top 10 list, God gave humanity his top guidelines for living the Ten Commandments emphasizing the importance of putting God first in all areas of your life. These laws cover everything from adultery to theft to murder. Not surprisingly, two of the ten give God's view on how the sexes should relate to one another. The seventh commandment says, You must not commit adultery. God created men and women as sexual beings meant to enjoy the deepest forms of sexual intimacy. But the Bible makes it clear that sexual intimacy is to exist only in the context of a lifelong, faithful, monogamous relationship. Scripture is rife with examples of how sex outside of marriage can contaminate and ultimately destroy every area of our lives. The Tenth Commandment tells us not to covet things that belong to other people, including their houses, oxen, or donkeys. High on the list, we see you must not covet your neighbor's wife. Here again, because we are sexual beings, God specifically applies the commandment to sexuality. Over the centuries, some have complained that the Ten Commandments are too negative instead of positive. Others have suggested that God seems preoccupied with sex, but considering the many ways inappropriate sexual relationships can complicate our lives. God's instructions regarding adultery and covetousness are appropriate and necessary. 
he's not trying to squelch our fun. He's trying to cut down on our heartache. Chapter 21. Fair Treatment of Slaves. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years, set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If you were single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If this master, if his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. But his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years, as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be brought back again. But he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners, since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry a son, he may no longer treat her as a slave, but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. Cases of personal injury. Anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. But if it is a simple, simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from it, my altar and be put to death. Anyone who strikes father or mother must be put to death. Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Now suppose two men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or fist, and the injured person does not die but is confined to bed. If he is later able to walk outside again, even with a crutch, the silent will not be punished, but must compensate his victim for lost wages and provide for his full recovery. If a man beats his male or female slave with a club and the slave dies as a result, the owner must be punished. But if the slave recovers within a day or two, then the owner shall not be punished, since... The slave is his property. Now suppose two men are fighting, and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman, so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands, and the judges approve. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. If a man hits his male or female slave in the eye, and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And if a man knocks out the tooth of his male 
For a female slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned, and his flesh may be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring, and the owner had been informed but failed to keep it under control. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned, and the owner must also be put to death. However, the dead person's relatives may accept payment to compensate for the loss of life. The owner of the ox may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. The same regulation applies if the ox gores a boy or a girl. But if the ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins, and the ox must be stoned. Suppose someone digs or uncovers a pit and fails to cover it, and then an ox or a donkey falls into it. The owner of the pit must pay full compensation to the owner of the animal, but then he gets to keep the dead animal. If someone's ox injures or injures a neighbor's ox and the injured ox dies, then the two owners must sell the live ox and divide the price equally between them. They must also divide the dead animal, but if the ox has had a reputation for goring, yet its owner failed to keep it under control, he must pay full compensation, a live ox for a dead one, but he may keep the dead ox. So, chapter 21, God showed concern for people in bondage and granted them a means of gaining their freedom. But as with any situation involving a network of relationships, there were possible complications. Some people may have been affected adversely by the freeing of a slave and set out to stop the process. And when slaves were freed, they needed to learn some difficult lessons about living responsibly without a master to direct their behavior. These same truths apply as we enter a season of spiritual renewal. Some of the people close to us may stand against us because they benefit somehow from our bondage. Such obstacles must be overcome. We also need to learn to live responsibly and unselfishly as we begin our lives of freedom. In verses 5-6, through six, God offered each slave the option of becoming a slave for life. This idea of becoming a slave for life by personal choice was used in the New Testament to illustrate the commitment we should have to Jesus Christ. Being a slave to a loving and gracious master is a wonderful thing. It has been said that we are all slaves to something. Our passions, material things, alcohol, and drugs, the expectations of others, or any number of things. But none of these masters is kind. Only God truly loves his servants. He is the only master worthy of our voluntary, lifelong devotion and service. In verses 12 through 27, these laws deal with the consequences of inappropriate behavior. Notice that compensation for wrong behavior is emphasized, making it clear that God holds us accountable for our actions. These laws reveal God's instructions for maintaining an orderly, healthy society when proper boundaries have been overstepped. They safeguard human relationships and personal identities while also recognizing the worth 
of life and property. In verses 28 through 36, according to this passage, we are not only accountable for our own actions, but also for everything we own. For example, the Israelites were required to control their animals so they couldn't damage the property of others. Even if the owners were not directly involved in an incident, they were still held accountable for the actions of the livestock or members of their household. This kind of mature accountability serves as the basis for a just and responsible society. And lastly, in verse 32, 30 pieces of silver was likely the standard of average price for a slave in the ancient Near East. Yet as much as this may have been worth, it could not compare to the true value of human life created in God's image. Oppressed people are often bound by a poor self-image. It would have been of interest to all slaves at this ancient time to learn that the Son of God would someday be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He submitted to such humiliation so that he could heal us from our sinful past, breaking the bonds of our sin. He came to set us free, buying us back with his very life. So seven weeks after leaving Egypt, the Israelites get to Mount Sinai, also called the Mountain of God. God says he wants to meet with them, so they need to consecrate themselves. This is what he told them to do for the firstborns, to set them apart and prepare them to encounter God. Consecration usually involves a bath and clean clothes. Moses says to abstain from sex too, not because women are evil, but because seminal fluids and blood are symbols of life and death. To be depleted of either of those things points to the depletion of life, which isn't fitting for the presence of the giver of life. Also, they can't get close to the mountain or they'll die. If someone does die, no one's allowed to touch the person because it'll transfer both their death sentence and the power of God. Bottom line, God's power isn't hypothetical. A storm and a trumpet blast signal God's arrival. He descends as fire, covering Sinai in smoke. Then there's an earthquake. In the midst of the storm, fire, smoke, earthquake, and ever-increasing trumpet sound, God tells Moses to come closer, to climb to the mountain no one's allowed to touch, because God has a few things to tell him, namely the Ten Commandments. God is talking to Moses, but the people over here, God uses his personal name with them and points to his love for them. I am Yahweh, your God. I brought you out of slavery. He enters with relationship. Before telling them his laws, then he gives the ten words. That's what they're called in Hebrew. The first five words are vertical. How to honor God and the last five words are horizontal. How to honor others. 
Here are some things worth knowing. The second word about idols and graven images reveals our natural inclination to worship things. Everyone worships something. Mostly we worship what we see regularly. The challenge for our adulterous hearts is that Yahweh has no physical form. In order to worship Him, we have to move beyond our human nature, which means setting aside the created things we can see with our eyes. Even though God does appropriate a physical form from time to time, like in Theophanies, He's not attached to or confined to that form. And when God says He's jealous, it's not like our jealousy and envy. The word used here is used only in reference to God. Its meaning is more like protective or zealous. He's protective of and zealous for his relationship with us. It's an act of love. In the third word, we see how seriously God takes his name. There are lots of layers here, but let's focus on three. One, as people who have taken his name, we're called to live in ways that show we belong to him. Two, this prohibits any kind of insincere or frivolous use of his name because it suggests we're not taking it seriously. And three, God takes personal offense to anything that diminishes his personhood or character. His names represent his character and his actions. Taking God's name in vain could also correspond to doubting that he is who he says he is. Chapter 21 gives us gives a general outline for how to live in civil society and treat others well. It reveals God's desire to protect and respect life, including life in the womb, because all life points to its giver. When the people see God's power and are afraid, Moses says something that seems contradictory at first. Do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Chapter 20, verse 20. So should we be afraid or not? There's a crucial distinction to make between the two uses of the word fear. The fear in, quote-unquote, do not fear, carries the idea of dread. This kind of fear drives us away from God. It's sin adjacent. But Moses uses a different word when he refers to fearing God. It carries the idea of reverence and awe. It's joy adjacent. And it has the effect of drawing us to God. The fear of God is composed primarily of delight and awe, moving us toward God. It's like what we feel at the Grand Canyon. We take long trips to go stand on the edge with our eyes and mouths open wide, overwhelmed with beauty, yet knowing it could kill us. Moses says that's the kind of fear that keeps us from sinning against God. I like the kind of fear that draws me closer to God, because he's where the joy is. As if we're reading today, I'm just going to leave you all off with a daily devotional. Seek to please me above all else. As you journey through today, 
there will be many choice points along your way. Most of the day's decisions will be small ones you have to make quickly. You need some rule of thumb, thumb to help you make good choices. Many people's decisions are a combination of their habitual responses and their desire to please themselves or others. This is not my way for you. Strive to please me in everything, not just in major decisions. This is possible only to the extent that you are living in close communication with me. When my presence is your deepest delight, you know almost instinctively what will please me. A quick glance at me is all you need to make the right choice. Delight yourself in me more and more. Seek my pleasure in all you do. Amen. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. Hope you all have a great day and God bless each and every one of you.